Really good to see you this evening. Glad you're here. We are in the series that we have called Distorted. We've been looking at, well, frequently quoted wisdom sayings in the Bible. But the ones that we're looking at are the ones that are frequently quoted in a way that distorts what truth is in that wisdom saying. So we're picking out four of them. We're on the third one today. And uh, maybe just by the title, Week Three Plans to Prosper, some of you have been around long enough to where you actually, ah, I know which verse he's talking about. Plans to prosper. Hmm. If you are like uh, that Key, tuned into that phrase, you probably really like that verse. And it's one of those verses that we really, really like. So I'm asking you, as I mess with your verse that you really, really like, <laughs> that you not get mad at me, um, because uh, our focus for this evening is this. Uh, distorted good news is dangerously attractive. Distorted good news is dangerously attractive. Very rarely are we attracted to bad news. And uh, so it's the good news that is distorted that has a little shaping power and a danger to us uh, because it's, it pulls us along. I mean, maybe you get this a little bit as it relates to scams. There's a lot of scams out there. And scams usually work when you add some good news to them. You know, uh, Years and years ago, I got this official-sounding scam. Um, I knew it was a scam because it was from a Nigerian oil company. I'm thinking, why does a Nigerian oil company ask me stuff? And they had an overage and a surplus, and they needed some bank accounts to send these millions of dollars through. And this official thing said, literally, they wanted to use my account to send $30 million through. And if I would just you know, cooperate, they'd give me 30%. It's like, that's great news. but. I didn't go for it. There's something not quite right about that. So uh, it's the good news side of it that causes anybody to think, oh, maybe, yeah. I mean, what do I have to lose? I only got 200 bucks in my account. You know, that kind of thing. We, we kind of go for the good news side of the scam and kind of get sucked into things. So. Distorted good news is dangerously attractive. Just in case you have no clue where we're going when I said plans to prosper, you, you can't think of this verse. Here it is. Jeremiah 29, 11, a very popular verse among uh, believers. It reads like this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You can see why this verse is a popular verse, right? That's a feel-good verse if there ever was a feel-good verse. I, I like this verse. And I still do, even after I'm going to be playing around with it, messing around with what people do with this verse in distorting it to make it mean something it doesn't mean. Uh, there's a whole branch of teaching out there that keys in on this and others like this to cause us to think things that are a little bit distorted as it relates to particularly the word prosperity. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. So back in the day when most small towns had Christian bookstores, you could buy mugs with this verse on it. You could buy T-shirts with this verse on it. Maybe at home you have plaque 
a plaque with this verse on it, just to remind you how, how much God cares for you, and he's looking out for you, he's gonna prosper you. And so, <clears throat> again, a, a small reminder <laughs> as we take a look at uh, the broader picture to see why the writer wrote this and what is really going on here. What I'm setting out to do is help us to realize the way most people understand this verse is not what this verse is trying to get across to us. And so, um, as I kind of do that, let's, let's open our hearts, our minds, and take a look at what the text says and see what's really going on here. I think by the time we get through, you'll actually look at this verse from a deeper perspective and have more appreciation rather than less appreciation. We've been working on three basic principles throughout the series. I've been reiterating these each week, so here it is. The first week, we actually filled in blanks. Understand the context. That's the first key to interpreting Scripture correctly. Interpret the Bible with the Bible is the second key, and make sure you apply what you learn. This is not just a head trip and learning more information. We're really after the transformation that comes from learning the truths that come from God. Now, I reminded us last week um, that I learned something from the Children's Church Department when they were trying to explain context to kids that under, didn't understand context. They talked about the principle of 2020 clarity. Bringing 2020 clarity comes with context. You back up 20 verses before the, the key verse and you go 20 verses beyond the key verse and having that context of 20 verses before, 20 verses after, it actually gives you a clear vision like 2020 vision. I thought, that's a great way to explain it, not just to kids, I'm using that with the adults. So we're, we're looking at that together again today, backing up, looking at 20 verses ahead, 20 verses after, and seeing what that context is all about. A reminder with the second point, truths that are quoted to you can be distorted, will be distorted, have been distorted, and we have to kind of understand how to Identify what is distorted and remove that distortion. I, I mentioned this, that Jesus in the wilderness was tempted by the devil who quoted scripture. We usually don't think of the devil as a, a scripture quoting devil, but he knows the scripture. He quoted scripture to trip Jesus up, and Jesus then corrected the distortion by quoting another scripture and another scripture. It's by understanding all of scripture that you interpret the Bible. Jesus' view of the Bible is that scriptures do not contradict each other. You have to see how they actually fit together and truth holds together. And so Jesus interprets the Bible by the Bible. We do the same. Having kind of reviewed that, we're going to jump right into Jeremiah 29, 11. And I'm, because we're doing the 20 verses before, 20 verses after, I'm not going to put it all on the screen. I'm going to ask you to grab a Bible if you didn't bring one. Grab a Bible in the chair in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd like to give that one to you. Um, and hopefully, just kind of going through some of this will make you want to um, read a little bit more carefully because we have to just kind of skim some of the 20 verses before and skim some of the 20 verses after and kind of highlight a few things. So, again, uh, let me tell you where you're turning to. We're in Jeremiah. Um, we're going to be on page 545 if it's kind of tough for you to find Jeremiah. By the way, in the future, um, there is a table of contents of the Bible. You can always look up the books and find the, where they are located. Jeremiah. Now we're going to take a look at the context. The quickest way to do this is to back up to the first verse of the chapter. 
um, because I want us to, I want to ask the questions first. I want you to look for the answers in the first verse of chapter 29. Here are a couple of questions to get you thinking as we look at the verse. Who wrote this letter? Who did he write it to and what was the occasion? Okay, who wrote this letter? Who did he write it to? What was the occasion? So look for that as we're looking at verse one. Here we go. Jeremiah 29.1 reads, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people. Here's a big one. Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody say Nebuchadnezzar with me. Nebuchadnezzar, that's a big mouthful. The king of Babylon had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, okay? So right there, we already have the answers of the three questions. Who wrote this letter? Jeremiah. Who did he write it to? Surviving elders among the exiles, along with several others. He lists off the priests, the prophets, and other people. These are survivors of the exile. So that places us in history, okay, around 590 uh, BC, all right? And to get the larger context, we'll kind of fill in some of that, but um, the, the story of the Bible goes that God chose one person and he made promise to this one person, Abraham, that he would become a father of countless people, the father of a nation that he was gonna choose, and through that nation, the world would be blessed, okay? And then as we move forward in the story, that was 2000 BC, move forward in the story to about 1,500 um, BC, all of those offspring are growing and growing and growing. Unfortunately, they don't, they're not a nation yet, they're slaves in Egypt, and then with the story of Moses, God miraculously uh, delivers this uh, offspring of Abraham that is now a million people strong out of Egypt and that he's gonna lead them into the promised land which is going to be their nation location and they are a nation under God. And that's the story of the Bible. Now, in 1500 BC, um, the words of God to Moses are given to the people. In Deuteronomy, we read um, what God says will happen in the future if they forsake the covenant that God is making with them. If you really don't listen to me and you start serving false gods and you break covenant with me, you're basically going to uh, be dominated by a foreign power. You're going to be exiled and your nation will be no more. If you humble yourselves and call out to me, you can return and be restored under the blessing. Which is interesting, because now we're at Jeremiah, and the fulfillment of that prediction is taking place, not just a prediction, but a warning. They've been warned and warned and warned and warned by prophet after prophet after prophet. You need to turn back to God. You gotta quit following these false gods. You gotta get rid of your idols. You need to quit doing things your own way, and none of them are doing this, and Sure enough, the superpower of Babylon is now hauling them away, hauling their treasures away, hauling their, their holy items in their temple away, and they're on their way to exile. We are just about ready to fill in the first point, the first set of blanks on your outline. Who is the promise to? The promise we're talking about is Jeremiah 29, 11, where he says, I have plans to prosper you. I have good plans for you. Who is this promise to? And so just to get us thinking, um, the screen is a couple of questions and a quote. Is this a general promise to each of us that says, hey, what can I do for you now? I exist for your pleasure and prosperity. 
that's how a lot of people interpret this verse. I have plans for you, plans to prosper you. What can I do for you now? What would you like? I'm your God. Call on me. I'm your guy, and I'll bring you prosperity. All right? Is that what this promise really is about? And, or here's the next question. I can, you, you can already guess where I'm going with this. Or is there something more going on with this promise? How many of you want to go with the last one? All right, I'm leading you pretty well then. There is something more going on with this promise. So what we're going to do now is start again at verse 11, which is the promise. We're going to back up one verse now to verse 10, Jeremiah 29, 10. Just take a look at that. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And then we read, I have plans to prosper you. This is like the ultimate bad news, good news. You are in exile, and you're going to be there 70 years. And then I have plans to prosper you. Right? It's like, oh, great. So we need to kind of see this context. I mean, this is a national timeout. I mean, not timeout, time, time. No, it's like sit in the... We had a little plastic green chair. It was the discipline chair. Time out. Go to the chair, okay? And this is the, the time out for the nation. I said this was coming. I told you what's going to happen. You have not repented. And now, just as it predicted, Babylon, the superpower who doesn't even believe in me, who has false gods, is overtaking you. You're being hauled away. And now, this is what the Lord says. You're going to be in exile, nationless, without your sovereignty, without a king, under the superpower, and it's going to be 70 years. Bad news. The good news is, your time out is not forever. I have a good plan for you. Now, let's focus on the good news for a moment, because this good news is just rather remarkable when you focus on the good news. What other nation do you know that's completely nationless, landless, in exile, actually comes back and recovers from that? Israel does repeatedly. It does this time. It does again later in history because God says, I'm making this promise. I'm going to bless the world through you. So even though you are totally messing up, we're going to put you on timeout. I'm going to bring you through this because I have plans for you and I've promised it's going to come through. So there's really kind of a confidence builder that God is still God. We run into people like Daniel, um, who is faithful through this 70 years. And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who won't bow down to the false gods. I mean, the gods of Babylon totally ruled, dominated, dominated the world. So all the people could go, whoa, their gods are bigger, their gods are better, and so they're going to kill us if we don't bow down to their gods, so we'll bow down to their gods. No, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, no way. Our God is God. Your God is not a God. I don't care if you build this monument and play the harp and zither and threaten to kill us. We will not bow down. Our God can save us. If he doesn't, he's still God. They got the message of Jeremiah. We're going to be here 70 years. We're trusting our God. He's going to bring us back. We're good. They got Jeremiah's message. Now, the reason why that's so important is the background of what this promise does to help us understand that God is still God. He has plans, even in the difficulty. That's the context of this promise, all right? Now, we're going to kind of look at that a little bit 
more carefully. So remember the verse I just, uh, verse one, chapter 29, verse one, who did he write this to? The exiled uh, elders. Let me just ask you a question. Is an elder younger or older? Okay, an elder is older, okay? That's helpful to understand because these elders are in exile. They're marching a long ways from Jerusalem. They were the the city officials and leaders. They were the elders of the nation. They're elders because they're older by definition. Let's, Let's just pick a young elder. Let's say that he somehow qualified to be an elder and he was 40, young elder, okay? Now he receives the news from Jeremiah the prophet, you're gonna be here 70 years, Okay, and the very next verse then says, God has plans to prosper you. What does this older elder think that prosperity means? Does that, he think it means, oh, we're good. I'm gonna be wealthy, get back to the nation, everything's fine. No, if you're 40 and you count 70, you're, you're not making it back to your nation, right? So let me just ask you, is the promise to prosper an individual promise for the elders, or is it a national promise to bring prosperity? Okay, just kind of mull that over in your head. Now, I know I'm messing with your verse. We love this verse because we want to prosper. I want to prosper, but what does that mean? And what is promised here? That's the question. So, um, before you go home and scrub off your Jeremiah 29:11 tattoo, um, hold on because we're gonna we're gonna piece this together in a way where it's like still a great verse. Okay. Point number two. Watch out for distorted good news. Watch out for distorted good news. We're gonna take a look at a showdown between two prophets in the previous chapter. It's a showdown between Hananiah, who claims to be the prophet of the Lord, the prophet of the Lord of Israel, and Jeremiah, who claims to be the prophet of the Lord of Israel, but they have two contradicting messages. And we're gonna see a showdown between these two, Hananiah and Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 28. So take a look at Jeremiah chapter 28. So back up to page 545 in your Bible. Verse two and three, we're just gonna skim through this section here. Verse two and three, Hananiah is speaking at this point. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. Hananiah was proclaiming good news. No, 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 no. Hey, relax, God is God. We're gonna be out of here in two years. It's a popular message in that day. They absolutely wanted to believe that was true. Watch Jeremiah's response. Jump down to verse six. Here's how he replies. He said, amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill the words you have prophesied by bringing the articles of the Lord's house and all the exiles back to this place from Babylon. I mean, that's, that's great news, but... What's he saying? Nevertheless, listen to what I have to say in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. From early times, the prophets who preceded you and me have prophesied war, disaster, and plague against many countries and great kingdoms. But the prophet who prophesies peace 
will be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true. This is a showdown, and he's setting this showdown up. Guys, I, everybody's loving what Hananiah's message is. Amen to that message. I would love for it to be true too, but it's not true. Jump down to verse 15, Jeremiah 28, 15. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year, you're going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. In the seventh month of that same year, Hananiah the prophet died. Now, this is just two months after the showdown exchange. You can look at the earlier part of the chapter. In the fifth month, he says this, and now in the seventh month, he's dead. Okay? Wow. This, is, this will make a great movie. I mean, this showdown is something. You can see how the people are confused. Both are claiming to be prophets of the Lord. Both are speaking about how God is gonna bring them back, but there's a total conflict in the tone of the message. Hananiah is saying, no, this is only a short time. Just hang together. Don't, don't cooperate with the Babylonians because we're only gonna be here two years. Jeremiah says, that's not so. We're gonna be here 70 years, and the Lord is actually saying, cooperate with the Babylonians. Support the Babylonians because if the Babylonians prosper, you will prosper. Continue to prosper in your family and in your family, hold together, continue to have lots of children because 70 years from now, we're gonna bring you back. You need to make sure you're not bucking against and fighting the Babylonians. They'll wipe you out. We're gonna be here 70 years. Hananiah on the other hand says, no, it's two years. We're gonna have our nation back. Come on, let's dig in our heels. We're, we're gonna hang in there for two years. Let's do this thing. Jeremiah says, you're preaching lies and it's contrary to what God wants us to do in this situation. And who's going to be true? And how will people know who's speaking the truth? Here's how they'll know. You're going to die. That's how they know. Whoa, let's see who's true. If Jeremiah is correct, Hananiah is going to die. If Hananiah is correct, we're going to be out of here in two years. Let's watch. Is Hananiah right? Is Jeremiah right? Is Hananiah right? Is Jeremiah right? Hananiah is dead. Jeremiah is right. Okay? Now that Jeremiah is right, he was right on this one. Whoa, he's probably right on the 70 years one too. We need to shift gears here and start thinking in terms of 70 years instead of two years. And that's the content and concept of this section when they're told, but God has plans for you. It's gonna be 70 years, but it's not an end of the line. He has plans for you in the middle of this difficulty. That's the context of this verse. So watch out for distorted Good news. Now, just to put this on a real practical level, we're all vulnerable <laughs> to distorted good news. We want it to be true, and so we think it's true. Careful of that. Be really careful of that. Let me give you an example that's not biblical, okay, so that you can kind of deal with it a little bit. Somebody was relaying to me some really, from my perspective, really great news. Did you hear the study that coffee actually reduces cancer? If you drink one cup of coffee a day, the study indicates that your 
chance of getting cancer diminishes by 10 to 15%. If you drink three cups of coffee a day, the study says you diminish your chance of getting cancer because of all the antioxidants or whatever that stuff is, anti-whatever, the good stuff, the anti-cancer stuff. You can see how that I didn't really look into it. I just, I just went with it because like, I really like coffee. Really? So like if three cups a day makes a 30% chance, I'm like, what about like 10 cups a day? Oh, you know, what about like 10 pots a day? I'll never get cancer. You know, die of a heart attack, but I'll never have cancer, right? So that's like, oh man, I like this study because I like coffee. I didn't actually go study the study. I just started drinking more coffee with less guilt. There you go. Now, we all have that tendency, if we find a truth that we hear and we like, rather than really investigate, we're, we're attracted to the good news that we want and hang on to. I am too. So, now we're coming out of the context section of evaluating this verse and kind of evaluating it with other pieces of the Bible to make sure that the way we understand this verse fits together as a whole. So, I was really struck by 2 Timothy 4, 3. I'll put that on the screen. We're going to look at several verses in other places. So here we are on the screen. 2 Timothy 4, 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. This is Paul speaking to his protege, Timothy, way back uh, in the first generation church. And he's saying there's going to be a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Do you think we're there? Okay, that's a good question. But what really struck me is the next section. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. I have never seen this before from this question that immediately came to my mind. How did ancient people gather around them, the teachers, to teach them what they want to hear? That's not how it worked. You would go to a teacher that you liked what that teacher had to say. I agree with that teacher. You would go to that teacher and listen to that teacher. They didn't have the ability to gather that teacher around them and this teacher, I like him, around them, and this teacher around them as if they can gather teachers around them. This is fascinating to me. Paul is saying there's coming a time when people will not go for sound doctrine. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We live in a day because of the internet where we can do that. I don't know that any other period of history you could except for maybe by gathering around books. I like this book, I like this book, I like this idea. But we're in a time like never before where people totally make up whatever they want to believe because I like what this guy has to say and this guy agrees with this guy over here and this guy agrees with that guy over here and we gather around the teachers we like to give us the stuff the way we want it, the way we like it. And we don't have a stomach for sound doctrine. There's a whole segment in the Western church. The, way, the reason I say Western church is it's really prominent in the West because the West is wealthy. Because of our wealth and the desire for prosperity and how we view prosperity, the prosperity gospel the prosperity, health, and wealth gospel has gained ground among the wealthy. As long as you do this and this and this, God prospers you. 
We're blessed because we're prosperous. And it's a distortion. But if we want and like that distortion, we can gather those teachers around us and look at the verses the way they are looking at those verses and they're out of context and we start seeing prosperity and defining it in ways that Jesus didn't define it. It's troublesome. So, I am not, I try not to view my role as attempting to please you. I, I view my role as attempting to equip you. I need to equip you so that you will have the truth when the world is tough on you, when you run into problems and lies and, and distortions. I need to equip you. Sometimes that equipping equips you to face when you're not prospering. Now, if you were listening to the prosperity gospels and you're not prospering, and suddenly you, you're struggling with cancer, does that mean God didn't deliver on his plan to prosper you? What does the verse mean to you now with God's plan to prosper you? And how does that verse work? So we're interpreting the Bible by the Bible. Fill in uh, point number three, if you're the kind of person that likes to do that, and fill in the blanks. Uh, point number three, distorted good news is unreliable and inconsistent. I want to show you that in the scriptures. So again from Paul, this time also to Timothy, uh, chapter three, 2 Timothy three twelve, we read, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, here's another P word, it's just not prosperity. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. That sounds a little different than prosperous. Which is it? Those who want to live a godly life in Christ will be prosperous or those who want to live a godly life will be persecuted? And you're thinking, I'm so glad I came. Aren't you glad we came? I just totally took your prosperity away and gave you persecution. It's like, how do we put that together and what is this about? How do we understand this? So we gotta not have it become inconsistent and contradictory. What is God teaching us here? Let's take a look at another one from uh, Paul also when he's writing the church in Philippi. Chapter uh, one, verse 29 of the letter to the Philippians. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. In your theology of prosperity, you need to have a theology of persecution. In your, prosperity of, in your theology of prosperity, you also need to have a theology of suffering. You need to understand where suffering fits in all of this as you prosper and walk with God. Because... Nowhere in the New Testament do I read that this is easy, walking with Christ. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. So this, this strain of teaching with the health and wealth gospel and prosperity that comes to you, easy, one, two, three, easy peasy, just pray this and just give this amount and then you're gonna prosper, blah, 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 is... It, it, it gains some traction in the wealthy countries, but it doesn't gain any traction in third world countries. It doesn't gain any traction in persecuted countries. 
where there's persecution. It's like, really? No, they're hanging on to Christ and learning how to walk with Christ in the middle of these difficult circumstances, learning to suffer for him, learning to be persecuted, learning to pray for those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Whew. So here's a statement. Um, the true good news is not about superficial prosperity and health and wealth, but about living in and for a whole different kingdom. Let that settle in. Jesus' whole message, if you read Jesus' message, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel messages and Jesus' words are mostly found there. Um, you're going to discover that his message is about a kingdom that he brought. It's a, not of this world kingdom, but he invites us into it to follow him as king right here in a dark world. And the true good news is not about superficial prosperity, but prosperity in a kingdom. It's a different kingdom. He says, okay, you're all hung up and worried about clothes and hung up and worried about food. Don't worry about that. Seek first his kingdom and all this will be added unto you and you'll, you'll have enough. That's not the focus. The focus isn't that prosperity. The focus is prospering in the kingdom, walking with the king. We're in a battle. I'm in a battle. I'm in a battle every day, a battle in my heart between my kingdom and his kingdom. And that prosperity distortion is actually playing to the wrong hand if it's all about my kingdom. And if I can prosper in my kingdom by doing this, this, and this, my kingdom can expand, my prosperity gets better, and blah, blah, me, 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 it's the opposite kingdom. And we're in this battle to live for his kingdom. And that's why we might need to suffer for him. That's why we may be persecuted because it's not about my kingdom. It's about his kingdom. But there is really good news in Jeremiah 29, 11, in that we will prosper. And it's clarified what it looks like in the verses that follow. So let's fill in the blanks. Blank number four, repentance works for everyone. That's the good news. Repentance works for everyone. I mean, think about this. The real good news for us isn't more wealth. The real good news for us is eternity. The real good news for us is our sins are forgiven. The real good news for us is we're no longer in the darkness and stuck in sin. We're actually given the power to win, the power to walk away, the power to be in Christ and in his kingdom. And that isn't just hanging out and waiting till we go home and get to heaven. No, no, no. It's about the kingdom of heaven getting into us transforming the way we think, transforming the joy we have, transforming our peace, giving us the ability to be the, the husband we need to be, the, the father we need to be, the home that is living in the kingdom and Christ is in the middle of it. What a great prosperity there is there. It's not about the prosperity, the way it's distorted so often and it's lifted out of context. So let's take a look at verse 12 and 14. Repentance works for everyone. Jeremiah 29, 12 through 14, page 546. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Here's a nation that had run from him with all their heart. 
They had turned their back on him and were living life so independently, totally ignoring his word, totally ignoring everything about everything he stood for, and now they're in timeout. It's going to be a 70-year timeout, and he's saying, but repentance is going to work. I still have plans for you. Repentance will work. Seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is really good news. Have you ever walked away from God? The good news is that there's a path that Jesus provides to be embraced and heard and forgiven. You can repent and you can prosper in the peace and forgiveness that comes from our King. Would you pray with me? Lord, I've talked about how This battle rages in my soul, it rages in my heart, it rages in my mind. So frequently I'm tempted to ignore you and think I can just do my daily routine, even in kingdom work, even as a a pastor, even as a minister. I've got this, I can do this and go on my own. But I lose because there's no eternity there. There's no significance there. There's no power there. Lord, I want to step into your kingdom, not my kingdom. I want to hear your words when you say, apart from me, you can do nothing. I want to admit your assessment of me that I am a sinner that needs forgiveness and that there is a path of prosperity that comes through Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I thank you for taking my sins away, for paying a penalty that I deserve to pay, but setting me free from the judgment that belongs to me. Thank you, Jesus, for taking upon yourself a judgment so large that I could be set free, that I could be forgiven, I could be washed clean so that you could dwell in me. Lord Jesus, thank you for the power to live a prosperous life that gives glory and honor to your name in the middle of suffering, in the middle of persecution, in the middle of difficulty, in the middle of exile, in the middle of whatever it is that we are going through right now. And each one of us are in the middle of a story and you're calling us back. Lord God, we repent. We turn to you. We ask you, to fill us with your spirit, bring honor and glory to your name. You deserve our lives. And we offer them up to you. We thank you for your good plans. We want to walk in those. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.